KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. All eyes on a Supreme Court justice regarding Title 42. This is just a very temporary delay if he grants it. Um, it there'll be more wrangling in the courts if he, if he does grant it. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. <music> Trying to slow COVID cases before Christmas. You don't need a randomized trial to know that a respiratory virus that's aerosolized is blocked substantially, particularly two-way masking instead of just one-way masking. But masks help. Paying more for the water we drink in the future. And college students learn lessons from the late Tejano singer, Selena. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The legal tug-of-war with Title 42 continues, just days before the Trump-era immigration rule was set to expire. Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the immigration policy will remain in place, at least temporarily. Title 42 allows border officials to use the COVID pandemic as justification for turning away asylum seekers without a hearing before an immigration judge. Elliot Spaggett has written extensively about all of this for AP News. He joins us now. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, MG. You were up late updating your latest reporting, Elliot. Remind us about the specifics of Title 42 and what's happened at the U.S.-Mexico border here as a result. Well, migrants have been expelled 2.5 million times since March 2020 when uh, the Trump administration, the CDC specifically, uh, in introduced, uh, evo invoked this 1944 law, which uh, allows authorities at the border to uh, deny rights to seek asylum under U.S. international law on the grounds of preventing the spread of, of covid uh, it's, it applies to all nationalities, but in practice, it's fallen disproportionately on those that Mexico will take back. Uh, that includes, of course, Mexicans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans, more recently Venezuelans. They're the ones who have had the most difficulty getting in to claim asylum. The others have received exemptions for the most part. So, But the ones that have been held back are the ones that are expected to come across when Title 42 ends. And you asked about, you know, last night. Um, it was actually a, a little bit earlier than that. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, agreed to a request by 19 Republican-led states to uh, keep Title 42 in place for now. Uh, it still may expire as, as scheduled at midnight, uh, but he, you know, he asked, uh, he said it was on hold. He allowed the, he's allowed the Biden administration to, to file a, a brief by 5 p.m. Eastern today and we'll, we're just, you know, all eyes are hand on him, really. It's, it's going down to the wire. It would be in a, like an emergency stay. So if it, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that he would, if he does allow it to uh, keep it in place, it would just be for a few days or maybe a week or so until there's more discussion. 
So, Elliot, let's back up for a second. What caused the sudden end of the policy that was scheduled for tomorrow? And what does the Supreme Court ruling really mean? It's been a long time in the making. So uh, Joe Biden, when he was campaigning, well, he, he really didn't address Title 42. Um, he did dismantle a lot of Trump era policies, though, right out of the gate, most most notably the Remain in Mexico policy, which uh, made asylum seekers wait in Mexico for their hearings in U.S. immigration court. The one policy he did keep in place is Title 42. Now, his uh, CDC director on April 1st said that there was no longer a public health uh, justification for this policy and said it would end on May 23rd, giving giving about a month and a half to prepare for the end. It's a tortured legal history, but, but uh, the Republican-led states got a judge in Louisiana to keep Title 42 in place then in May. And that, that was pretty much down to the wire. Then another judge in another case in Washington, D.C. decided on November 15th that it would end December 21st, which is tomorrow. So it's just a, a lot of back and forth. The Biden administration has, you know, in theory, said that Title 42 should end in April, and they're still holding that position. They did argue, they did appeal this ruling in November, but it's more on our, an argument that they should be able to invoke this uh, authority in the future. They're not opposing the uh, dismantling or lifting of Title 42 uh, for now on, on Wednesday. How long have asylum seekers been waiting for a hearing? The la- latest figure I saw was last year, and that was, uh, I think it was four years as the average. If you're not detained, the four years as the average to, to get an, a, a decision on asylum. The backlog has since grown to more than two million cases. So it's really, it's, I'm sure it's longer than four years. And the other thing that's happened is uh, more recently is the Border Patrol, because they're so you know, overwhelmed, they just release people on parole. They parole them and tell them to report to an ICE office wherever they're living uh, in two months. And then it falls on ICE to do the, the, the paperwork for a court case, which takes more than two hours a person, which is a lot when you're talking about these numbers. So they're, uh, you know, as of March, it was taking at least two years just to get on the docket, just, just to get a case number. Uh, at, at, so that's two years plus an additional four or five, six years um, for your case to be decided. So you're looking at, at probably six years. Wow. And meanwhile, what happens to the asylum seekers? Well, they can apply for a right to work, but um, basically they're just in a sort of purgatory. Some are detained, but very few really, especially and there are limits for how long you can detain people. So for the most part, they are living in, uh, they don't stay in San Diego very long, but uh, just because just it's not a major destination, but they, they fan out to Florida, New York, uh, Boston, LA, and uh, just live their lives. Local organizations have been trying to help with the backlog of immigrants who are stuck. What are they doing? There's two. I was yesterday, I was at Jewish Family Service of San Diego, which has been operating a shelter in San Diego since October 2018, has served, uh, I believe it's more than 110,000 migrants. They, they work with families. Uh, Catholic Charities uh, got into this uh, last year, I believe. So it's basically those two groups that are helping people with motels when they're when they're released by the Border Patrol uh, or, or Customs and Border Protection, um, and then helping them with their travel arrangements, their food, showers, just sort of getting getting their feet on the ground. And, and um, most of them fly, I'm told, to the eastern part of the country. So they, they tend to uh, fly out of the country, but they may take buses or get picked up by someone. But those organizations, and they exist in every border city, they tend to be faith-based, but not always. They're very critical to, uh, you know, to this process.
Some border communities, and I'm thinking about El Paso, Texas in particular, have declared a state of emergency anticipating the end of the policy. What are they preparing for? Well, lots of people. Um, I think I read, uh, yeah, we reported the other day that they're expect- the mayor said he was expecting 5,000 people a day, which is uh, up from an average of like 1,700 a day in October. And they were already, El Paso was you know, relatively quiet. And then it, it became very, very the busiest place on the border in September, or October. Um, so the state of emergency, I, I don't really know what that means. It probably has something to do with funding, but they like every other place on the border and it, it probably more so because it's so busy right now are preparing for more people. So when title 42 is eventually lifted, what are we expecting? Well, I mean, like I said, I think that, you know, there's certain, or uh, uh, nationalities that have really not been that much affected by Title 42. Uh, Cubans right now are, is Cuba is having the largest diaspora to the United States since the revolution in 1959. And all those people, the vast majority are coming up to the border. They fly to Nicaragua and come up to the U.S. border. Uh, Peruvians, uh, Colombians, Haitians, uh, for the most part, they have, they're not being affected by Title 42. But other nationalities that have been um, expelled to Mexico for the most part, they're the ones who have had a hard time getting in. And, and if Title 42 is lifted, they'll be able to, you know, cross, uh, presumably, presumably, we'll have to see how this works, but they'll be able to come and claim asylum. So that's Mexicans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, El Salvadorans, and Venezuelans. So the clock is ticking. We are waiting on the Biden administration's response, and then we will know what happens next. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really all eyes on on Chief Justice Roberts for now. Um, you know, I don't know what the administration can can say. They'll repeat their arguments, but it, all eyes are on him for now. And then, uh, you know, after that, like I said, I, this is just a very temporary uh, delay. If he grants it, um, it, there'll be more wrangling in the courts. If he if he does grant it, and uh, it'll it'll just be you know a, a roller coaster ride uh, that that it has been for the last year or so. Stay tuned. I've been talking with Elliot Spaggett, reporter for AP News. Elliot, thank you. Thank you. Many people are celebrating the holidays with gatherings and letting their guard down a bit when it comes to COVID-19. But cases are rising, variants are spreading, and there's a lot more than COVID going around. So what should people be doing to avoid infection? And do methods of the past still work today? Joining me is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure to be with you, Jade. We got plenty to talk about today. Yes. So, I mean, we keep hearing the term triple dimic, which pertains to RSV, COVID, and the flu. But are there more viruses floating around out there? And uh, what's the current situation with these illnesses? Well, there is a triple dimic, um, and we have three respiratory viruses. Um, and that, of course, not just uh, COVID any longer, but we're hopefully peaking out the flu and RSV seasons. In addition to that, of course, we've got strep A, we've got monkeypox. Um, so we we have no shortage of contagious problems here. But I think the principal ones are the respiratory viruses because 
it's one of the worst flu seasons we've had in decades. Uh, and certainly COVID hasn't gone away, as you already touched on in, in your lead. And let's talk about the latest dominant variant for COVID. Uh, what is different about this one? And how soon do symptoms surface after exposure? Well, there's some good and bad here. Uh, the good is that we've had so many infections and the vaccines and boosters uh, that we have an immunity wall built. And so while the variant that we're dealing with now, it's called BQ1.1, it's still on the rise. Uh, together with BQ1, it's the dominant in the U.S. and here in San Diego. And it will continue to uh, spread uh, and grow um, in terms of dominance. The good thing is that even though that variant has the most immune evasion of variants since the pandemic began, along with another one uh, that's mainly in Asia called XBB, that our immunity wall is holding up reasonably well. The The issue, though, that we're seeing is the vulnerability of seniors, where the hospitals around the country, and certainly here as well, are seeing a disproportionate high number of people, 65 and older, that are getting COVID and require hospitalization. So that's the thing that we have let our guard down, is the people at high risk who are not getting a recent booster. And a very important CDC study last Friday showed that this is 80% or greater reduction of hospitalization. And the thing of em emphasis that um, is to keep in mind is that that's compared to people who've had infections and vaccines and boosters. So this is a 80% is a great amount of protection. We just aren't getting our uh, seniors boosted and we've got to do that. You know, one line of defense against spread is testing. Uh, now you can order new COVID tests from the USPS. Are old tests still good at detecting these new variants? Yes, they are. And indeed, the ones that are being sent out for free, uh, which I was amazed, I got it within two days of sending in the request. Uh, but uh, they've had their uh, expiration date extended a year. So while we'll probably need them in the, in the weeks ahead, uh, they're, they're very good to detect the current variants, and they should be used. And that's one of the other tips about gatherings that you mentioned, Jade, is that if people do get uh, a rapid test uh, within hours of gathering, that'll help screen out some people who don't even know they have COVID. That is, their symptoms haven't really started yet, or they're asymptomatic, but they have a positive test. So it isn't perfect, these rapid tests, but it does help. Are PCR tests still better? And do you recommend people take those if they've been exposed or are experiencing symptoms? Well, the PCR test can help when there's some ambiguity about the rapid tests. But the problem with them is they stay positive for a very long time. So uh, I don't know that they're the, the go-to first uh, test to get because they're not as easy. They're not as inexpensive, simple. But they're certainly useful as a backup or, or a, a confirmation. So that's, I think, probably their best use today. Unfortunately, we don't have a good handle on cases here in San Diego or around the country because a lot of people are, have symptoms that could be construed as a cold or flu or even some with RSV. It's all a mishmash and people aren't doing testing and we don't have home flu tests. We don't have any RSV tests. So um, the only one that we have right now are COVID tests, and that at least helps sort out that question. 
Remind us of the latest guidance on isolation for both people who had a positive COVID test and for those who've been exposed to the virus. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that's another really good use for the rapid test is you've had COVID. Uh, even though the CDC says five days, if you're feeling okay, it's okay to move uh, about, but that's not a good recommendation. That's not based on evidence. The evidence shows that usually it's seven days or possibly eight, sometimes longer, but use the rapid test for two days in a row to see that you're negative, and then you can be assured that uh, you're not going to be a spreader. So that's something that the CDC really hasn't done a good job. In fact, they're guidance is something that could be held as responsible for increasing spread unwittingly of course they didn't do this uh, intentionally but people are are leaving um isolation too early and you're also a big proponent of introducing a nasal vaccine can you talk about uh, why that could be a better option than what's currently on the market well i'm hoping for some really great news in the beginning of the year i can't get into detail but um, the nasal vaccine is the best shot we have, shot, it's actually a spray uh, that you inhale, to uh, block infections. Uh, we have masks, of course, uh, but they're they're not perfect by any means, and there's reluctance to use them, and, uh, and tr- particularly it's hard to use them. If you're a holiday gathering and you're having a, a meal or a party, I mean, you know, it's hard to wear a mask throughout all that, of course. So we need something more than masks, and there's only one other thing we can do, which is a nasal vaccine, which already is out in India and China, and there are a hundred of them around the world that are being tested, and soon that will have readouts on on several of them. Uh, I'm confident we will have nasal vaccines that work. The only question is, do they work for a few months, or is it longer? They should work against all of the variants, and you know, this is something that would be very exciting in the ability to start to block infections and the the whole tr- chain of transmission. So I do think uh, this is inevitable. We have to do this because COVID will be with us for the years ahead. We may still see a whole other family beyond Omicron that will be a threat to us. That's why it's really imperative that we push on getting nasal vaccines and you mentioned masks. I mean, with all that's floating out there, particularly as people gather, what are your thoughts on reinstating mask mandates at this point? And I mean, should we be wearing them at, at our family gatherings? There are a couple of places in the U.S. that are starting to put out mask mandates, but they're not enforceable. It just sends off um, the, you know, a, a sense to many that um, they, they're being told they have to do something. I think we have to appeal to people that there is no question that uh, you don't need a randomized trial to know that a respiratory virus that's aerosolized is blocked uh, substantially, particularly two-way masking instead of just one-way masking. But masks help, and uh, I certainly use them. You know, on, uh, if I if I go to a place where people I have no idea their status, they haven't been tested. Uh, I think it's really a, a helpful defense, uh, even though. You may be in a group of people that aren't wearing masks. Uh, that that having that on will give you some extra protection. And finally, here, you know, while it is a good idea to mask up, do you have any other tips that may be useful for people traveling right now? Well, I think when you travel, that's that's the unknown territory. 
you know, when you're in airports and public transportation, many countries around the world uh, have uh, pretty strong uh, guidance for that public transport. When you're on a plane these days, I, when I've flown, I've seen, you know, a large proportion of people are not wearing masks. That's a problem. Uh, yes, it's true that during flights, the filtration in the plane, it helps reduce the risk. But if you happen to be sitting next to people that have unknowingly have COVID or, you know, they haven't done the rapid testing that's that's appropriate to make sure they're not infectious after COVID, you still could get it on a plane. So I recommend wearing a mask. It's hard when you're on a long flight, but it, it'll protect you and it'll help. All right. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thanks for joining us and happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you and everybody at KPBS and all your listeners. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. Water bills in San Diego are about to go up, and that increase is due in part to $274 million in upgrades at the Carlsbad desalination plant run by Poseidon Resources. The County Water Authority's board approved the upgrades to the plant's seawater intakes last week. The board says they are needed to protect marine life and meet California environmental regulations. Joshua Emerson Smith is senior environment reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. He's been reporting on this and joins me now to explain what's happening and how ratepayers will be impacted. Joshua, welcome. Happy to be here. So what are the upgrades that will be made at the desalination plant and why are they necessary now? So these are largely to the facility's intake system. So it sucks in all this seawater and then pumps it up to its reverse osmosis plant. And when it does that, it needs to make sure that it's not killing fish and other marine life, fish, eggs, and, and various things. California has a bunch of strict rules around this, and it is in the process of overhauling its intake system to meet those guidelines. Uh, previously, the Encina power plant was stationed there and it sucked in the water and then gave it to Poseidon as an afterthought. Now the Encina plant is gone. And so Poseidon has to meet the state's regulations on its own. So how will the cost, an estimated $274 million, contribute to higher water rates in the county? So the Poseidon plant sells that water to the region's wholesaler, the San Diego County Water Authority. And the cost that the Water Authority is going to buy that water for will go up as a result of these needed upgrades. And desalinated water is already expensive. How does it compare to other water and, and how much will this upgrade to the facility increase the cost? So desal is our most expensive source of water here in San Diego. Uh, currently, we pay about 
$2,800 an acre foot for this water. And that's the technical jargon that water folks like to talk in. Acre foot is enough water to cover an acre a foot deep or about 326 million gallons. And so costs about $2,800 an acre foot for desal. Whereas I like to talk about what the water authority sells water for to its 24 member agencies, such as say the city of San Diego. And for treated water, that is about $1,800. So desal water is $1,000 an acre foot more expensive than what the water authority sells to uh, its local member agencies. Is it, is it the process? I mean, why is it so much more expensive? Well, it's very energy intensive. So I, that's your major cost there, the electricity that it takes to, to run the plant. Um, but, the, you know, there's other things like these needed upgrades and just maintaining the, the facility. And all of those things put together have added to a very costly, although as the supporters of DSA will tell you, a drought proof supply. So the idea is that we can get this water, whether it's snowing in the Sierras or water is flowing through the Colorado River. Is there any way around this increase in cost for the water authority? Oh, no. They're, they're uh, signed a, a contract with Poseidon, a 30-year contract that goes through 2045, I believe. And so they're locked into this deal um, for the next few decades. And how are local water agencies responding to this news? So some of the local water agencies were taken aback by the uh, price tag. Uh, I told you it was about $2,800 an acre foot. That is slated to increase to nearly $4,000 an acre foot by 2026. And people were a little uh, shocked, shocked by the price tag. Uh, specifically, some of the water managers in Rainbow and Fallbrook suggested that maybe we should try to sell some of this water to other parts of the state where they're facing severe shortages, even more so than we are here in San Diego. And there was some talk that they would look into that. Uh, so far, the Water Authority hasn't made any substantive moves to explore that idea. Environmental groups have long been critical of the desalination plant. You spoke to someone from San Diego Coastkeeper. Uh, what is their reaction to this news? You know, they've always rejected desal and said we should be uh, investing in sewage water recycling. And that is something that the county is doing now, uh, or cities around the county are doing now. We have the East County Water Purification Project, the city of San Diego has its pure water project and so on. And they say that that is a better way of going about this, uh, more environmentally friendly and less costly. So when they saw this high price tag associated with the desal plant, they didn't hesitate to call it out. The bottom line for most people is how this is going to affect their water bills. What can you tell us about that? So the Water Authority did an analysis and it looked at what the increase in water costs from desal would contribute to overall rate increases. And overall rate increases at the Water Authority 
are you know somewhere on the order of four, five, six percent a year. Um, you know, then you get, have to tack that on to what happens at, for your local agency, right? So local agencies also have their own costs. So you might see a water increase on any given year of six, seven percent. The Increase the what desal is going to tack onto that is anywhere between half a percentage point and maybe 1.5 percent um, on any given year. So it will have a pretty significant increase for rate payers. However, we should also remember that depending on where you live, with all these different investments we're seeing now, especially in water recycling as well, you're going to see some pretty high increases. I mean, the city of San Diego was saying it may have to raise water rates, uh, something on the order of, I believe it was 16% over the, the next two years. So desal is just one more factor adding to those high water bills that San Diegans are uh, perhaps begrudgingly getting used to. I've been speaking to Joshua Emerson-Smith, Senior Environment Reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Joshua, thank you. Good to be here, as always. The Colorado River is in crisis. 40 million people depend on its water, and the supply is shrinking due to climate change. Policymakers met in Las Vegas last week to discuss its future, but didn't emerge with any new commitments to significantly cut back demand. That leaves hydropower facilities in jeopardy at the nation's largest reservoirs. KUNC's Alex Hager was there. There's no shortage of tension in the Colorado River Basin. The cities and farms that rely on the river's water need to start using less. And those who decide how it gets divvied up are caught in a standoff. In a Las Vegas Casino Conference Center, that all went down in person. There's no substitute for you know being face-to-face. It, it's, it's a lot easier to... Talk, talk a little smack, call some people some names, you know, when, when you're not looking them in the eye. That's John Ensminger, head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. Here at Caesars Palace, people from Wyoming to Mexico are gathered to get a sense of the river's future. And the word on everyone's lips is collaboration. Colorado's head river negotiator, Becky Mitchell, says there needs to be a collective solution to this collective problem. I think there's some heavy optimism that Hopefully everyone will come to something that we can all agree on, but it is going to take mean real cuts to everyone. Agreement is easier said than done. Mitchell herself placed blame downstream. States along the river's top half, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, say their water supply is at the whims of rain and snow, while the lower half can rely on steady, legally required deliveries every year. So Mitchell says those lower states should be the first to make cutbacks. We all have to be able to sell this, and it is really hard to sell something when there are winners and losers. Meanwhile, the lower basin has its own big water demands in cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles, but also sprawling fields of crops. About 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from farms in the lower basin. Water managers say the next few weeks will be critical. They're trying to add their two cents before the federal government makes some potential changes to the river's current rulebook. Bill Hazenkamp is with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. We really are focusing on this 45 days, and then if we're not successful, then you can ask me where we're headed then, because that's something I don't even want to think about right now. 
But water managers will have to think about it, and soon. Elizabeth Kobley is a political science professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. We're dealing with trying to respond to crisis while also thinking about long-term sustainability planning for the basin. And to me, that is creating so many challenges. Kobley says there isn't much new clarity on where necessary cutbacks to water use will come from. Even though we agree, yeah, this is a problem and we need to do something about it and it's not getting better, um, we haven't yet agreed on who's really responsible for doing any of that yet. A longer-term plan could come by 2026, when the current rules for managing the river are set to expire. And while that process is just beginning, groups historically excluded from river management want their voices to be heard. We want to have true and meaningful consultation. We want to really have nation to nation, but it really doesn't exist. Sean Chapoose is chairman of the Ute Indian Tribe on the Uinta and Uray Reservation. He and many of the other 30 tribes in the basin say they want more out of states that promise them a seat at the table. It sounds good in rooms, but what happens on the ground, and for a person like me who's actually in that rumble, I always tell people, yeah, you're, 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 you're seeing a narrative that's not factual. And while that negotiating table is being set, the river itself is only getting drier, putting the pressure on everyone who relies on its water to adapt. In Las Vegas, I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation. Presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. 27 years after the death of Tejano singer Selena Quintanilla Perez, her legacy lives on through music and a college class taught at San Diego State in the spring semester. Earlier this year, I visited the class and also met someone from the younger generation who considers Selena a role model for life. I heard a song on the radio and I really fell in love with the song Como La Flor. Georgette is a drag queen created by a young man born Jorge Noe Ledesma in a small town just north of Mexico City. Georgette sits at her kitchen table with a powder puff and makeup, preparing to become her alter ego, Selena, the Tejano superstar who died tragically but helped a confused 10-year-old Mexican boy live and find his true identity. I had a lot of bullying when I was a kid because of who I um, I feel great and I love what I do. Jorge immigrated to San Diego more than 20 years ago and has since settled into happiness and confidence he credits to Selena, her songs, and her spirit. She didn't speak Spanish so well when she was in the interview, but always you can see that she was giving her best. And this is my first time having an interview in English and I'm trying to give my best. So it's we have something in common with that. The sounds of Selena are now part of a college curriculum. Professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez 
pitched the idea for a Selena class to the administration at San Diego State University pre-pandemic. It is now a permanent elective offered in the spring semester. Dr. Nate, as students call him, is a fan and fellow Texan who grew up with a heavy influence from the Tejano singer. He built the class syllabus with 16 weeks of learning modules that use Selena as a bridge to Latino culture, media representation, and personal identity. There are field trips for students, too. They get to go out into Mario Logan, and they get to see the Selena Mercado for Walk the Block. They get to go to Mujeres Brew House for the release of the beer. They get to go see drag shows, and they get to conduct an ethnography, write about it, take pictures, videos, sound. An ethnography is the study of people in their own environment, which includes the LGBTQ community. The next two weeks of class are focused on learning that goes boldly down the rainbow road. Selena is a huge inspiration to the queer community. Tons of drag queens will impersonate her. A lot of uh, queer people such as myself find meaning in her music. And so we're going to learn about how we can queer not just Selena's music, but the Latinx culture. The term pocha is an important vocabulary word featured in class discussions. A pocha is a person caught between two cultures, not completely able to speak Spanish and not completely comfortable in the English-speaking culture. That was Selena and Karina Bazarte is an SDSU senior who can relate. Karina's Mexican parents thought they helped her by taking her from the barrio and enrolling her in schools with mostly white students. I couldn't find myself, so I'm like, am I like the only one that looks different? Am I the only one that doesn't have long hair or, or blue eyes? So like, Selena actually helped me identify who I am now. Natalia Martinez is one of Karina's classmates. She was only three weeks old when Selena was killed. I never really got to have her present, but I had her music. And I think that's where I was able to create Selena in my head in the sense of, wow, this is like someone who I want to have as my role model. Which brings us back to Georgette and the little boy from a little Mexican town who used to dance around his living room, imagining what he could become someday, listening to the music of Selena. The um, thing that I learn from her is to be always respectful, kind, and sweet. That's how I do every time I'm on stage. That's a legacy set to music that will never die. At the height of her career, Selena was a superstar caught between two cultures. She was just crossing over successfully to the English-speaking music world when she died. She is not forgotten by the millions of fans who still admire her life and work. One of those fans is SDSU professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez, who created the curriculum to teach students about the late pop star and her legacy. I spoke with Professor Rodriguez in the spring. Here's our conversation. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about why Selena is so important to you personally? Growing up, I was in San Antonio, Texas, which is the capital of Tejano music. I come from a Mexican-American family household, and they spoke Spanish, but they wanted me to speak English so that I would do better in school. So growing up, everyone around me was speaking Spanish. I never felt really culturally connected to the Mexican side or to the American side, and I did not know how to kind of form my own identity. I didn't see anybody in the media that looked like me, that sounded like me. And so I always felt kind of trying to play both worlds and never really achieving 
either one correctly. Then along comes Selena, who was singing in Spanish. She was talking in English. She was fumbling over her words. And I was like, wow, she's just like me. So I started listening to her music, watching her interviews, listening to her on the radio and on those interviews. And I thought, you know what? Here's somebody who is showing that there's not one correct way to be Mexican-American, to be Latinx. And so I started kind of, you know, using her as the cultural template to form my identity. It was kind of parallel to the things that I was feeling and going through my own upbringing. What is it about Selena, do you think, that makes it so significant that she teaches young people about identity, being themselves? Well, I think is that she's a pocha, just like I am. And so there's a lot of people who are dealing with different dualities. It could be like her, Mexican-American. You know, she was dealing with two cultures, two languages. And I think a lot of people are struggling with the dualities of different parts of their identity. So she shows that you're able to kind of balance them in your own particular way that makes you feel comfortable and makes you feel like a person yourself, rather than trying to have to fit into some sort of box. You use the term pocha. What does that mean? So pocha traditionally is a pejorative that Spanish speakers would call non-native Spanish speakers because they didn't speak Spanish correctly. And since then, it's kind of been used as a term of empowerment and a reclaimed term to basically describe somebody who is comfortable with their identity and they're in between English and Spanish, doesn't really speak the best of both, but is who they are exactly. So adoration and love for a pop star is one thing. Why structure a course around Selena's life here in San Diego specifically? We are in the borderlands. We're right here between Tijuana and San Diego. Selena grew up in Texas and she was right there along the Mexican border as well. And so I think for us here in San Diego, there is a very much a need for us to connect culturally with this duality that's Mexican-American culture. San Diego State University is an HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution. And when I first came here back in 2016, in the Journalism and Media Studies Department, I noticed that there was a lot of Latinx students, but there was not a lot of courses or curriculum that spoke directly to Latinidad, and they were searching for themselves. And so I thought, well, we need a course here that talks about, you know, Mexican-American representation, Latinx representation in the media, the ability to reach students where they're at, but also kind of get them involved academically and professionally and connect those two worlds. Selena is that perfect cultural anchor. She kind of bridges those two things together. Students have an affinity towards her to want to learn about her and then apply those things to the current media landscape that they're already so much involved with. I'm going to assume most of your students were not even alive when Selena was performing. Not at all. So how have they connected with her? Through her music. Her music is timeless. As I mentioned before, she kind of connects through generations. You had the movie that came out in 1997. You had the Netflix series that came out in 2020. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody was watching streaming media. So they connected through Selena through these mediated representations. And in fact, it's interesting that you bring up that none of them were alive, which is very much true. A lot of their recollections about Selena isn't how she looks physically or how she did look. They remember Jennifer Lopez's portrayal of Selena or even the actress who plays Selena in the Netflix series. That's 
who they remember. But they connect through the music and they connect also through her culturally, that she speaks Spanish and English. And the fact that she loved fashion and that we see her all around us today in Target and Forever 21 on t-shirts. We see her MAC cosmetic line. So I think she's living around us all the time. She's there in the pop culture. And it's just something that you can't ignore. And the students, of course, know that. Yo tenía una esperanza en el fondo de mi alma que un día te quedaras tú conmigo y aún guardaba una ilusión que alimentaba el corazón mi corazón que hoy tiene que verte como solo amigo to that point, her music has impacted so many diverse communities, particularly the queer community mm -hmm. and drag queens especially. I would imagine she's probably one of the most imitated performers in the drag queen community. And I think it goes back to this conversation about identity and duality. And I think queer people, right, are sometimes trying to figure out their identity in very specific times. They're growing up, you know, and they're having this internal conversation with themselves of who am I? What am I? And I think Selena is another perfect example of that kind of cultural template of looking at these dualities and these binaries. I mean, not that identities are dichotomous and one or the other, but they can all exist at the same time. And sometimes we have 17 to 20 different facets of our identity. And I think from a queer perspective, we can see how we can take someone like Selena and look at her and she symbolizes so much of who we are culturally, especially if we are Mexican-American or Latinx or Spanish speakers, and how we can use her as kind of that archetype to create a persona, her hoop earrings, her red lipstick, her purple sparkly jumpsuit and the way she dances, moving her hips to the cumbias. It's fun, it's culturally relevant, and I think it's also nostalgic in a sort of a way for a lot of queer people. What would be an ideal song you could point to that would speak to what we're talking about? Probably something like Amor Prohibido, which translates in English to prohibited love. In the song, she never really says if it's a man or a woman. She just talks about two people from two different societies who are in love with one another. And it's prohibited by their parents. It's prohibited by society. But love endures and love endures all. And I think for the queer community, love and acceptance has always been something there against all odds. That's a theme amongst a lot of people who are queer. If you could have Selena in your class as a guest speaker today, what do you think her message would be? She was always speaking about never giving up to remember that the impossible is always possible. So I think it would always be one about perseverance. It would be one about loving who you are and being authentic. And I think just, you know, being happy and fulfilling your own personal destiny, whatever that might be. Perfect way to end this conversation. I have been speaking with SDSU Professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez. Dr. Nate, thanks for joining us. Muchas gracias.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.